When I was um, when I was a little kid, I had a recurring dream. You ever have a recurring nightmare? Uh, I lived on a three-decker uh, New England, typical New England home. Three-decker, the stairs were like about that. Um, there was no OSHA in the 1800s when they built all these buildings. And so, so I, I remember the, the steps were really worn too. They kind of had this saddle looking thing. And uh, uh, we had one at the very bottom of the, the first, and I lived on the third floor of the third decker. Uh, and, and there was a, a stair right at the bottom as you turned to go out that had been broken. Uh, the rest of the stairs were gray. And this one, he had never painted. Our landlord put the new one in there, and there was caulking. I, I remember the caulking because it was in my dream. And every, I, I, it happened once a week. I'd have this dream where I'd go down the first flight of stairs, come down the hall, and then I would go and, and stand at the edge, and then I would jump. And, and I would wake up right as my face was approaching the caulking. That's the only reason I remember there was caulking on this unpainted stair. And I, just like that, wake up. And I had these, these types of dreams haunted me as a kid. And so, you know, you're wondering what in the world this has to do with, um, with our sermon today. I wonder what it was like to be Ezekiel. Uh, you get to Ezekiel, and uh, I know uh, there's some difficult material in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then you come to Ezekiel. And um, I wonder if Ezekiel ever... because. because Ezekiel lived after some of the really great prophets. I mean, he's after Isaiah. He's after Elisha and Elijah. It's actually, he probably knew Jeremiah. They were both priests at the approximate same time. Jeremiah would have been a, a little bit older than him. But, um, but they were both priests in the temple right, right before the fall. And, and I wonder if he thought, God, why me? I mean, you give these guys, just, just could we please, I would like a normal... A normal, you know, just, just go to the king and tell him, listen, bad stuff's going to happen to you pretty soon. I would like one of those prophecies, if I could. But he, and, and, or at least, could you, could you just break me in a little bit? I'm the kind of guy, when you, when you, you, you go swimming, there's, there's people, like, like uh, my wife's cousins, so they, they just jump right in. I'm one of these guys. All right, I'll be here for five minutes torturing myself, and then I'll be down here. And everybody else seems to be having fun, but I'm going to torture myself for 15 minutes, sir. You know? and, and, and God does not give Ezekiel the chance to, to, to get used to anything. We're going to turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. You'll see what I mean. Ezekiel chapter 1. I wonder if that was me. And if you got to Ezekiel, this, this chapter probably, you're like, oh boy, this is weird. This is one of those, those dreams you have, and you're like, what did I eat before I went to bed? It came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the first day of the month, as I was, in the captives by the, I was among the captives by the river Kebar, that the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. That's important that you, you get that phrase. This phrase is going to be important to what we're talking about uh, later. These are visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, the land, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So I looked, and behold, 
A whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, and radiating out of the middle of it, like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire, and from inside of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and each one had four faces, and each one had four, four wings. Their legs were straight, the soles of their feet were like the, the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of polished bronze, and the hands of a man were under their wings on the four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another, and their creatures did not turn when they went. Each one went straight. As for the likeness of the faces, each one had a face of a man, each had a face of a lion uh, on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. This was what their faces looked like. And their wings stretched outwards. Two touched each other. Two covered their bodies. And one went, uh, and each went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted them to go, and they did not turn when they went. Now as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like uh, coals of burning fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of that fire went lightning. And the living creatures ran back and forth like flashes of lightning, and I looked at the living creatures, and behold, there was a wheel. Now this is really going to get strange. There was a wheel on the earth next to each living creature with the four faces. And the appearance of the wheel and its mechanism was like the color of beryl. And all four had the same likeness. And it appeared, as the, the mechanism was, as it was a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And they moved and they went towards any one of the four directions and they didn't turn aside when they went. And as for the rims, they were so high, they were awesome. And their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. When the living creatures went, the wheels went. When the living creatures were lifted up, the wheels were lifted up. And where the spirit wanted to go, they went because that's where the spirit went. The wheels were lifted together with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. And when those went, these went. And those Stop, these stop. And when those were lifted up, the wheels were lifted up together. For the spirit of living creatures was in the wheels. The likeness of the sky above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. And under the sky, their wings spread out straight, one towards each other. And each one had two wings which covered one side, two that covered the other side. And when they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters like the voice of the Almighty, a tumult, like the noise of an army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from the firmament that was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the sky, over their heads, was like the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire. It was uh, on the likeness of the throne, was the likeness of a man high above it. And from the appearance of his waist and upwards, I saw as it was the color of amber, and fire all around inside of that. And from the appearance of his waist and down, it was like fire. And like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of this brightness all around it. And this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. You get up after having that dream. Wow, what did that mean? I better write this down before I forget it. Now think about that. Well, before we get to all of what that means, I want to just handle some of the stuff. You like, I got the first two verses. I was I was with them, 
but not quite completely because he says, um, we've we got to get the timing down here. This is the only thing in the, here that was literal. And it says, now it came about in the 30th year. And then in verse 2 it says, on the fifth day uh, of the fifth year. And so it was like, what in the world is the timing here? So we kind of need to, to understand it. And as you go through Ezekiel, this timing will kind of explain some of the details. Not a whole lot, I promise you. Uh, but it will at least explain a few of the details. Um, and so, so uh, we need to know what the 30th year and the 5th year are. Uh, I'll do this because it's history, and so I will do it only very briefly. Uh, so when we talk about the captivity of Babylon, that happened in three different phases, right? Um, and, and as, as Nebuchadnezzar got increasingly uh, upset with the people in Jerusalem, it happened and he just, you know, we're going to do a little bit more. So the first one happened 606 B.C., 606 years before Christ. Uh, he came down and he took all the, the, the good guys, right? The, the really strong people and the, the really smart people, people like Daniel. I don't know what that says for Ezekiel, but uh, Ezekiel didn't go in this first way. Uh, but people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the people that Nebuchadnezzar thought were the greatest, the youth, the young ones, maybe it just was Ezekiel was a little older, I don't know, uh, but the youth, the strong, uh, and, and the, the, the potential, the people with the potential, he took those people in 606 B.C. Uh, Jehoiakim was king at that point in time. Uh, about uh, six, eight years later, he got upset with Jehoiakim, uh, and he came and took him, uh, and a bunch more people. Uh, now, uh, Jehoiakim had a son, Jehoiakin, which is referenced in here. And this is about three months later. Like, he was kind of in the process of taking him back, and Jehoiakim thought he was something, so they stopped the train, we're going to back up, and I'm going to take you too. And he, so he takes Jehoiakim, the son, and he takes Ezekiel. Okay? Um, and so they were there in this, five, this fifth year of Jehoiakim, Re- that's what this is referencing. He, he's been now in Babylon for five years. Now, it's gonna, there's going to be a, a third captivity that we will refer to, uh, not in this sermon, but, but, uh, but Ezekiel will refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed yet. That will happen uh, 11 years after that second captivity. So there's six more years yet after, after this book is at least starting to be written. It will be six years after that that Jerusalem will be sieged and destroyed completely. So you think, well, wait a second, he's already in Babylon. Why is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, the, he, that hasn't happened yet. That's going to happen. And so it's kind of important to understand where this is in time. There's been ca- several captivities, but not the final, the final rubbing out of Jerusalem hasn't happened yet. And uh, so now that... We've done that. What does the 30th year mean? What is that? Um, if we then go from this point, we took in all these other scriptures and all the stuff that we're not going to get into, and we backed up 30 years from, from this fifth year of the captivity, we would come to that day where Josiah became king, and, and not the day he became king, but when he uh, discovered that law. They were cleaning out, and they were going to clean up the temple. And so it's said, hey, we've got some neat things here. And, and they started reading, and it was that law that had been forgotten. If it was 30 years from that point that this all happens. I know we, we think, wow, Josiah was so long ago, because that was back in like March or whatever. So, no, this is, this is really close in time. And, and so, that was such a momentous event that they started 
chronicling their time, in a sense, from it. Like, oh yeah, it was 30 years after this. You know, like the, uh, the big thing has been this, this last week was the, the anniversary, the 50th uh, anniversary of the, the assassination of RFK. Right? That was all the news. Right? And so so people, people commemorate things by, by significant things that happen in their life. And, and this, this law being discovered was a momentous event in their life. And so, so it was 30 years after that, the fifth year of this second captivity, if you will, that all this happens. And that's all that there is that's literal. And now the rest gets really difficult. What is with these, with these weird creatures and, and, and these wheels and side wheels and what's going on? The first three chapters is where God is calling Ezekiel. You're going to come and you're going to do these great things. You're going to speak great things. And I've got some visions for you. I, I really haven't given Elijah and Elisha and most... I didn't really talk with them in weird dreams. You know? They had dreams, but not the weird ones. He's like, Maybe we could just start off. No, you get, you get thrown into the deep end of the pool, pal. You get the weirdest thing just about first one. And see, all this is trying to convince Ezekiel to step up. And it is important, that phrase that I highlighted. These are visions of God. So we, we have a little bit of the interpretation. Were they angels? Were they what? What were they? Were these... Are these You'll notice if you read Ezekiel and Daniel, you'll notice a lot of these pictures are going to be in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 4, it talks about these creatures that surround the throne and say, Holy, 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 all day long. Are they real? But seems pretty literal. These are pictures, he says, they are pictures of God. So he gives you the interpretation. I do not believe that these are angels. We're drawn to the concept of angels, certainly, by the wings, aren't we? We're going to see kind of a little bit of what that, that means. They are pictures of God. And a specific concept. Well, these, they, these things say holy, holy, holy in Revelation. It's obvious that the, the, the picture is the same. What is he talking about? And I believe... What we will see is that they represent God's interaction, God's nature, His character, as it relates to His relationship with man. We're going to see four different aspects of His character and nature that demand that we understand Him as holy in four different areas. And so we want to look at each of these four things. Well, first of all, let's talk about the wings uh, before we get to the faces. They are symbols of angels. Like, as I said, we think of, we think of wings, we think of angels. Right? We think of messengers of God. That's what angels are. And so the individual pictures that we are seeing here are going to be symbolic of ways that God interacts with mankind. This relationship, how he communicates with those he loves. 
And so there are four faces. What is a face? A face, excuse me. A face is what something represents. Abraham Lincoln once was accused of being two-faced. He says, well, if I was, had two faces, do you think I would have taken this one? <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would have used my other face. Yeah. The, the person accusing him of that, obviously, was saying, you represent one thing to one group of people. This was the accusation. And when you're over here, you represent a different thing to a different group of people. And that was what the man was accusing him of. Faces represent or, or show our representation of something. And so, I don't believe there's actual four creatures and there's this, there's this eagle face over here and a, and a cow face over here and lion face or whatever. But I believe that we're looking at pictures Things that they would have understood from their culture that represent things to give them pictures of God. Well, if that be true, what does a lion represent? Well, a lion represents the same thing in every time anyone's ever talked about lion. Authority. That's what a lion is. He is the king of the beasts. Christ was called the lion of Judah. He had absolute authority. And so the first way that Christ communicates, the first thing that we must understand about God that is holy, is His authority. When God interacts with mankind, He does so from authority. And His authority cries out that He is holy. Holy, holy, holy is God's authority all day long. 24 hours a day, God's authority is to be unquestioned. Patrick Mead, was a, he's a preacher I met. Um, he's from originally from Ireland, but he was at the time preaching in Detroit. And, uh, and he said, it's kind of a joke. Uh, he was talking to somebody. He's like, I'm, I have an engineering background. He said, uh, I see grass. And he's like, I see a design flaw. He's like, if I made grass, it would grow about two and a half inches tall. Stop. Right? Me, that's an engineering problem. Right? That was a joke. Right. We do this so often. We look for the design flaws in what God has done. Like, if I designed the church... I would have made it this way. Right? We look for the design flaws. God's got total authority. I want to mention something here. At that church, as he continued talking, it was, it was a seminar, so it might have been a different, a different sermon he was talking about. That church, it's, it's located right between uh, Flint, Michigan and Detroit, Michigan. They have a tattoo parlor in the church. True story. When you start questioning grass and the height thereof and God's creation thereof, it just leads you to question anything. I know it's silly, but once you establish the idea that you can question anything that God has made, you get to question anything else God has made and designed and done, whether it be insignificant, like the mosquito. God, why the mosquito? <laughs> Not here's the question. 
You didn't get to be there when God made mosquitoes. He made it. Live with it. You don't get to question that. He made it. And he made the church. And he made the family. And he made all the things that he wanted to make. And he made them the way he wanted to make them. And when you start to question one thing, if at 11.59 and 45 seconds you say, God's not holy. Just this one second. If there's just that one moment in the 24 hours where God is not holy, then he ceases to be holy. God has all authority. That's the first way he communicates with man. We come to the face of the eagle. What is the eagle? Well, look at the references to the eagle in the scripture. It will bear you up on wings of eagles. Christ says, uh, and He says, My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There's the concept of elevation, the concept of being something higher, reaching a higher level. God's plan and God's design is to take people from one level and say, there is something up here. I don't like heights. I hate heights. If it can be achieved from the ground, I'm good with it. Maybe a couple feet off the ground. I'm okay, more or less. But... You know, you go up to a certain level and I'm not interested. But God says, I elevate you to something higher. But sometimes we're afraid of heights. Oh, I will stay down here, God. That's not the design, that's not the plan. You see. I should not have to rely on God's authority for doing things. It should be trusted. It should be trusted because I shouldn't have to be coerced into following the plan. I should accept the idea that God's plan is holy because it's, it's what makes me better. It's what puts me up a high level. That's why it has authority because of what it does for me. But he goes on to the third one. He talks about the, the ox, the face of the ox. Now that seems kind of that seems kind of rude. I mean, it would be the poor creature that had the face of the ox. I mean, oh, this poor guy, oh, he's got, the, he's got the, the eagle, that's nice. And this guy's, I got a cow face, you know. Isn't it interesting that among all the creatures, including the lion, the one who is selected most often in these times to be the representation of God was the cow. Ox. Why well, I worship that. What, 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 what is it about the ox that people said, this is what we're going to worship? Now I know some of you watch commercials and you think the Clydesdale is, is the most greatest, most elegant... Burden, beast of burden that there is, but no, it's not. It is the ox that is the most dependable. It can do the most labor. It is most productive. It is most necessary to life. 
And see, God's plan and God's design is the most productive for humanity. That's why it shouldn't be questioned. That's why it has the authority it has. That's why it elevates us. Because it's the most useful, it's the most necessary, integral to my existence. God's communication with man is not arbitrary. He doesn't just pick things and say, you know, I'm going to get up today and I'm going to, I'm going to tell these people to do these weird things. But it was, it was things that were designed to make my life better. To make it more productive. Now we come to the eyeball. Hey, I got the face of a human. Good deal. What does that represent? Intelligence. See, at the bottom of all of it, the foundational element, why it's productive, why it has authority, why it elevates me to be greater than I can naturally be, is because it's logical. God's existence, His interaction with mankind has always been logical. Those who resist God's plan, those who think that, that they can do it better, that, that there's all these engineering flaws and all this stuff and everything that God's designed, fight against what is logical. They are not subject to authority. Everything that they do is against the concept of authority. Everything they do ends up hurting life more than helping it. And it does not ever, ever elevate a person to be more noble. So that's the first part. We're almost done. Because we get to the wheels. We're, I would like to draw your attention to the fact that even before cars, they had awesome rims. That was interesting. That's what's true. It's in there. They had all these awesome rims waiting around for the cars to be invented. I don't know. But it's called a mechanism. And there's one inside of the other. Now, I don't know how many people played with a gyroscope when you were a kid, but I kind of picture a gyroscope. Or there's a wheel, and there's another wheel, and they kind of go this direction and this direction. It says they can go any direction. That's the concept. Well, if we're talking, and he talks about there's eyes in these wheels going in all directions. Well, if you can go in any direction, an eye depicts seeing in all directions. What are we talking about? Well, we go back to the beginning of what, what we read. These are visions of God. And it says these mechanisms give these, these beings life. In other words, these beings, these, the, these things which are really nothing more than the, the characteristics, the representation of God's interaction with man, God's plan. What gives God's plan life? What gives God's interaction with man this life? Well, what is it that gives life? It is the Holy Spirit. And he references throughout the end of this passage, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, over and over and over. It is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Because he's trying to convince Ezekiel, listen, this plan, this interaction with humanity, you can become a part of it. He says, look at verse 17. 
So when they moved, they went together in any one of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. Ezekiel, you can get on board this wheel, or you can become part of the pavement. Because these wheels don't stop. This plan will not be stopped. This thing that we have will not be stopped. I could get on board, or I could be run over. That's the options you have, Ezekiel. So what's with these wheels? I want to read a passage that we didn't read because I said these are all a part of these are all a part of a, a, a larger text. Chapter two. We're going to actually back up to the end of verse of chapter one. So, so when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. He said to me, "Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you." And the Spirit entered me when He spoke to me, and He set me on my feet, and I heard Him who spoke to me, and he said, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. And their fathers have sinned against me till this very day. And, and this begins this call to Ezekiel. And he's saying, listen, I've got a job for you. And he's just impressed him with the majestic nature of God and, and what God's plan for interaction with his people are. God has a plan for those he loves. It doesn't make a difference how far they've strayed from him. God, God says, I still kind of have a plan for you to try to convince these people who have gone so far from me. We are getting ready to talk about organizing, outreach, and, and all these different things. Ezekiel did not have an outreach budget. No outreach budget. You're a slave. Get on board. It's nice to have a budget. Don't get me wrong. We live in a great time where we can have an outreach budget. And we can do great things. But it is not necessary. You just got to get on board. I just have to say... What is there for me to do? How do I introduce this plan to other people? And that's all it requires. But I can't do that until I'm on board. If you have not gotten on board today, this is the time to get on board. This wheel's going all over. It goes in all directions. It sees in all directions. If you have not gotten on board, it is time to get on board. If you are not a Christian this morning, it is time to give your life to Christ. Because this wheel has places to go. And it will go.